Hello, everyone. You're listening to ACC Chicago's podcast, It's All Hearsay, a podcast where lawyers give current news, practical tips, and real stories on legal issues relevant to in-house attorneys. My name is Chantal Kazai, and I'm in-house as Director and Senior Counsel with Discover, and I'm your host. This episode is brought to you by ACC Chicago and Faye Gree Drinker, one of our platinum sponsors. Visit us at www.acc.com forward slash Chicago to learn more about, like, comment, or subscribe to ACC Chicago and It's All Hearsay. A quick disclaimer. This podcast is not intended to and does not constitute legal advice. It is for informational purposes only. Listeners are encouraged to contact their attorney to obtain advice with respect to any particular legal matter discussed in this episode. So let's get started. In this episode, we're proud to present a primer on cryptocurrency. In a moment, you'll hear Jason G. Weiss and Jeff Bloomberg of Fagri Drinker discuss all things cryptocurrency with former Orange County District Attorney Rahul Gupta, a prosecutor with experience in cryptocurrency litigation. My first guest is Jeff Blumberg, a partner here at Bagry Drinker who specializes in cryptocurrency. Jeff, thank you for joining us. Absolutely. And I also have Rahul Gupta, a former prosecutor for the Orange County District Attorney's Office, who specializes in the prosecution of cybercrime and major fraud, and is also very familiar with cryptocurrency, especially as it relates to criminal litigation. So Rahul, welcome as well. Thank you for having me. Just because I'm a super nice guy, I'm going to read their bios for you because I think it's important you understand how studly these two guys are. Uh, Jeff is an experienced investment management lawyer who regularly advises clients on regulatory, corporate governance, business, and structural matters. He counsels registered and unregistered money managers, including hedge fund managers, investment advisors, broker dealers, commodity trading advisors, and commodity pool operators. Jeff advises the managers of both U.S. and offshore investment funds on daily operations and planning, funding, and structuring strategies that comply with regulatory requirements. He drafts and reviews fund documentation and agreements. He also counsels investment advisors in terms of commodity trading advisors, commodity pool operators on operations and other key business matters, including mergers and acquisitions, regulatory investigations and examinations, compliance policies, procedures, contracts, advertising, and securities violation. Jeff has spent seven years working in the financial service industry as an attorney with one of the largest independent financial firms in the Chicagoland area where he was a registered principal for the firm's broker-dealer office and acted as an internal compliance officer. So needless to say, Jeff, welcome. You are obviously well qualified to help us today. Thank you. Rahul was a prosecutor for 18 years with the and was a senior district attorney from the Orange County District Attorney's Office in Orange County, California, which, by the way, is where I live. Uh, Mr. Gupta specializes in prosecuting cybercrime in the major fraud unit of the Orange County DA's office. He has a background in technology, and he has has taught attorneys, judges, and law enforcement officers from around the United States on search warrants, digital evidence, social media, the dark web, and, yes, cryptocurrency. Just for legal purposes, the opinions of Mr. Gupta are his own and not that of any other agency or entity. Raul, welcome. Thank you for joining us. To the audience, I think we're going to get started now. Thank you for joining us. We're going to, I hope by the end of today's podcast, you're going to know everything you want to know about cryptocurrency. And Jeff, I'm going to start with you. Please tell our audience what, what cryptocurrency really is and how or why it matters. And if you could, throw in a short 
follow up on how does it differ from traditional fiat currencies and maybe explain that term for us. Certainly. So putting it fairly 30,000 foot, uh, cryptocurrency is a virtual currency that's tracked on a distributed ledger that's cryptographically, cryptographically protected. And so unpack that a little bit. Um, it's a virtual currency, so there's no actual script. There's no you know dollars, pennies, whatever that you get when you get a cryptocurrency. And the place where people, the place where the information about it is is, is saved, where people know what everyone has, is on what's called the distributed ledger. So when you put money in the bank, the bank has a ledger, and it tells the bank and everyone who works with the bank exactly how much money you have. But that ledger only sits at the bank. With cryptocurrencies, that ledger sits everywhere on the network. Every participant in the network has a copy of the same ledger, so everyone knows what everyone else has. And then we protect that, that ledger cryptographically because, because it is distributed, it's susceptible to people trying to change it and say, well, this one over here says I have 50 Bitcoin, but the one that I have here says I have 60 Bitcoin. So how do you know which one it is? By cryptographically protecting that ledger, it makes that ledger much more difficult, um, effectively impossible to, 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 to change without everybody knowing it. The current level of cryptography, I think I read that with uh, technology the way it is today, with the world's fastest computer, would take several hundred years to, to break the current cryptography on the system. And there's a new block for, for Bitcoin and other, other um, which we'll talk about later, but there's a new, you know, a new set of transactions that comes out every 10 minutes. So it's just not practical to be able to okay. cryptographically break them. Okay, so, so if I could, because I know my dad listens to this and, and he's about the least sophisticated guy technology-wise there is, <laughs> put cryptocurrency in one sentence. What, what re I mean, you gave me a good definition, but I would really want to break it down for the folks who don't understand it because I have to act had quite a few people ask me about this podcast. And I, this is the first question, so it's the most important. Tell me in, in, in one sentence or less, cryptocurrency is like just make-believe current, not make-believe, but it's like virtual, you said. What does that mean? That means it's digital. It means that, that there is no actual anything lay behind a cryptocurrency. It's just, it's, it's bits, it's, it's ones and zeros on a computer somewhere that says, I have this much of this and you have that much of this. So it, it's, it is a purely digital currency. There's a lot more that goes into it, but at the end of the day, that's okay. what it is. It's a digital currency. All right, all right. So what's a fiat currency? A fiat currency is the, the currency we're all used to. It's dollars, it's euros, it's pesos. It's, it's the traditional thing you think about when you, when you think about currency. And some of the big differences between fiat and crypto are, number one, that physical manifestation. You know, the U.S. dollar, it, it's pretty digital these days. I get paid digitally. I pay bills digitally. But if I wanted to, I could go to my bank and I could pull out a dollar to hand to someone and say, this is my dollar and I can give it to anybody I want to. There is nowhere that I can go and pull out a Bitcoin. There's no such thing as a Bitcoin. It's purely a digital representation. The only way that I can carry Bitcoin around is by putting it on some sort of portable hard drive, like a thumb drive. So that's yeah. We're gonna. I want to remind me of that because I'm gonna ask you a question about that that later. Because there's a very interesting case I I read about as I was preparing for this. But sure. Thank you. That actually is super helpful. And I'm gonna switch over to Raul real quick because one of the things I think people think about with cryptocurrency is that the bad guys like to use cryptocurrency as a way to kind of do their bad stuff. You know, like I know with ransomware, they always want to get paid in Bitcoin. And we're going to talk about that in a little bit. So Rahul, you, you, you've got a lot of experience in the criminal aspect of, of cryptocurrency. Tell me why cryptocurrency is used in criminal activities, especially cyber attacks. And kind of, if you could explain 
to the audience why they want to use cryptocurrency instead of more traditional fiat currency? Sure, uh, that's a great question. First, let me take a step back and say that cryptocurrency in and of itself is not illegal. Good point. Uh, Thank anyone you. Anyone yes. can use it. Uh, anyone can uh, download the uh, uh, the Bitcoin source code and mine cryptocurrency for yourself. So the transacting in cryptocurrency in and of itself is not illegal. Now, there are some regulatory laws that do apply in the United States as it relates to taxes and securities That's uh, that you have to abide by. But generally speaking, anyone anywhere could go to a, a Bitcoin ATM or a crypto ATM uh, in and around their area and purchase some cryptocurrency and start using it today. And I would encourage many people to do that just to become familiar with it because another caveat is uh, I, I believe in these technologies and I think that they are revolutionary. Uh, but as we'll discuss, uh, there probably do need some additional regulations. So to your point as to why criminals like to use cryptocurrency, uh, the first thing to understand is that cryptocurrency works as a decentralized platform. So what does that mean? Here in the United States, we have a centralized monetary authority, right? We have the Federal Reserve, we have banks, we have institutions that all are heavily regulated and everything is kind of traced or tracked. Uh, you may have heard uh, as recently as a few weeks ago when people were talking about legislation in Washington, they were talking about whether or not the IRS could look at your bank accounts and at what dollar amounts. So the majority of financial transactions in the United States are traced and tracked. What cryptocurrency allows is for a decentralized platform, such as the blockchain, to have applications on it, such as cryptocurrency, that really can't be traced by centralized authority, such as governments. Now, why is that important? Well, if you're living in the United States, it may not seem that important to you. However, if you're living in, let's say, a country that's not as stable, it doesn't have a strong monetary policy, like let's say Zimbabwe or Venezuela, you might look to an alternative source of currency that can't be devalued so quickly or even seized by that government. So enter in cryptocurrencies, which operate on these decentralized platforms, which means no one actually controls the platform on which it's running. It's just a bunch of computers and some computer code that runs it. So why is that appealing to criminals? Well, if you think about it, hey, if I can interact and transact with something that has value without that being traced or seized by the government, well, that has a lot of value to me as a criminal. And so from that aspect, cryptocurrency has kind of evolved into the currency of choice for criminals, not just for cyber criminals, Jason. What I would say is now we're mm -hmm. seeing that evolve into your everyday type of crimes as well, which is your run-of-the-mill extortion, your narcotics transactions, human trafficking. And you're seeing it now because of its ease of use and they're difficult in tracking and tracing uh, I mean, that it's becoming more important. Right. If I could just do a quick follow-up, what I'm getting from your answer, and I, I loved your answer, by the way, I thought it was really helpful for me, is it's, there's basically no paper trail. I mean, like, like I've worked in the FBI for 22 years. We used to pay ransom and kidnappings. If you're going after people, it was always a, you know, always envision a bag full of money with a tracker inside, and we could you know, follow them around, and there's a paper trail. What you're saying here, because I remember I've dealt in many ransomware cases where we've had clients who have paid ransom using Bitcoin. And that is, and that's what the criminals want because it basically negates the paper trail. Is that right? Roland? Well, using that phrase "paper trail" is a, is a great uh, starting point. So there is no paper, but there is a digital trail. And what the blockchain is is essentially it's an electronic ledger, and that ledger kind of belongs to anyone whose computer is hooked up to the network, and anyone can run the ledger. 
and it keeps track of all the transactions on the blockchain. And if you're talking about Bitcoin specifically, let's say Bitcoin, it keeps track of all the transactions. But those transactions are pseudo-anonymous. What does that mean? All that the blockchain will show you is that address A sent currency to address B, but you don't know who's behind those transactions. So it's not fully anonymous. We call it pseudo-anonymous, and that allows some level of safety and security for criminals to operate. Okay, yeah, because it deals with like the wallet. Like in, in, in ransomware, we get the bad guy's wallet and say, deposit this money into that wallet. What, is it, what am I doing there, Raul, when, I, when we deposit that Bitcoin into their wallet? So what that's allowing both the criminal and the victim to do is the criminal will set up a wallet, which is just an electronic um, – think of it as this. Think of it as like almost an electronic email address. And the criminal is saying, hey, I want you to send this information to this email address. But what we're used to is, hey, to get an email, you got to get Yahoo, Google, or going all the way back to AOL. What law enforcement could do in those cases is we could then subpoena or get a search warrant for Yahoo, AOL, or Google. In this case, what happens is when you set up the wallet address and the victim starts sending money to the address, again, going back to this idea that's decentralized, there's no central authority for us to serve legal process. So again, that allows a certain safety and security for the criminal. Now, I do want to say this, though. Because it's digital, there are a number of digital softwares out there, tracing softwares, that law enforcement uses quite effectively to aggregate these transactions and follow them all the way through. Because the one thing that's great about the blockchain is everything is transparent. So even though we don't know who's behind the transactions, we can follow each and every transaction for the history of that address. We're going to come back to blockchain in a second, but thank you, Roel. That, that was really good. That, that was really a great answer, and I'm going to come back. To, i got a couple of follow-ups on that, but I want to jump over to Jeff. Jason, Jason can we add something to, to what Roel said? Because I think it's really interesting because he, 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 made, he made the point that when the law enforcement authorities track these payments, you can track it from wallet to wallet to wallet. And in the same way that he mentioned Yahoo, AOL being that's who, they, that's who the law enforcement people can, can subpoena to get the underlying personal information – when the criminal takes that wallet and moves it to somewhere like a Coinbase or a Kraken or one of these other large regu regulatory binding counterparties, that's where the authorities can now track it back to a person. That's uh. the key is that e even though the blockchain itself is, is completely anonymous once you're in it, on the on-ramps and off-ramps are where people get caught. All right, good. We're going to follow up on that in a minute. And, that, and this may read, actually, this may be part of my next question. You know, for the record, on my earlier statement, I just want to let anybody from OFAC who's listening know that we would never send Bitcoin to sanctioned <laughs> entities or governments. So for the record, we're all we, we only do it honestly, of course. Uh, but but Jeff, seriously, in all, in, in all honesty, I mean, that joke went over everybody's head except for probably ours. But, uh, you know, this is a logical question. I think we really did a great job laying out from a criminal standpoint. But I know a lot of governments fear cryptocurrency. And what I want to know is why do, why do governments fear cryptocurrency as, as really a threat, I think? I mean, at least in my research, I, I kind of get that feeling. I, I noticed in the U.S. you're seeing a, a huge surge in the desire for cryptocurrency regulations. Can you kind of follow up on that and tell me what your thoughts are on that? Sure. I, I think Rod kind of set the stage well. You know, internationally, the primary concern historically with, with cryptocurrencies was money laundering. 
you know, making sure that, that you know who's behind the money because it's very easy to transfer millions and millions of dollars on the Bitcoin, on the Bitcoin network without a whole lot of regulatory oversight. So that was the initial concern. It's, it's sep- certainly evolved since then. Within the U.S., I think there, well, and most other, you know, th- uh, first world governments, I think there are two real threats they see. Number one is, is making sure that the markets are fair and orderly. The SEC is concerned, the regulatory risk. You know, we don't want mom, pa, kettle buying Bitcoin or actually Bitcoin's the least of our worries, but buying, you know, fraudulent coin, like maybe the, uh, the squid coin that came out a, a few weeks ago and losing their shirt because there was not enough disclosure. They didn't know what they were doing. And so the people behind it were fraudsters and took the money and ran. So that's one concern is the, the integrity of the markets. The second one is control. Now, the U.S. government has complete control over the dollar supply. They decide when new dollars are issued. They decide when to take dollars out of, out of circulation. So they control the monetary supply. With a true cryptocurrency, there is no control that a government can exert over that. So, you know. Wow, that's huge. It, 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 it is. And so my own two cents, and Rahul, I'd be interested in what you think. At some point in the next three to five years, one of the larger U.S. governments or larger international governments, the U.S., the EU, Russia, China, somebody is going to come up with their own cryptocurrency because otherwise they're going to get left in the, in the dust. Well, China is already working on that as we speak. So they are much farther ahead in this game than any other you know, country. What I think people should know about cryptocurrency is this. The first question you may have is, hey, if I want to get into this, how do I know which cryptocurrency is safe? And the bottom line is you don't because as we just mentioned, There's no centralized authority that's backing these currencies. So a lot of what you have to do is educate yourself based upon the information that's available. So starting off, obviously, Bitcoin and Ethereum are two platforms that have been around for a long time. Uh, They have a lot of applications that are connected to them, and they have some sense of legitimacy. But beyond that, there are thousands of other cryptocurrencies that exist. And you mentioned the Squid Game cryptocurrency. Every day, there's new ones popping up. In Over 6,000 to today. Yeah. In addition to that, this idea of decentralization is now expanding into what we call DeFi, which is decentralized finance, which is a whole another area where essentially the financial industry is being disruptive. So the cautionary tale for consumers out there is to proceed, but proceed with caution. And again, what I would say is maybe go to an ATM, buy $10, $20 worth, kind of follow it, use it. Educate yourself on it before you make any type of substantial investment. Well, I think what we can all agree on is that this podcast is providing no legal guidance or authority on, in, on investing in, in cryptocurrency in any way, shape, or form. So do it at your own risk, and please don't rely on us for that. You guys, you guys, you guys got me scared about that. I don't want anybody, oh, they told me I should invest. No, 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 no. Do your research, everybody. Do your research. Absolutely. But, uh, you know, thank you, Roe. Well, that's, that's good, but... Now, I, I need to switch topics a little bit because both you guys have, have mentioned the term blockchain. So I'm going to start with you, Jeff, and I'm going to follow up with you, Raul, to, to work in. But I need to understand, so I can explain it to my dad when he calls me after, after this is published and says, what the hell is blockchain and why do I care? Can you give me a short explanation, Jeff, on when you're dealing with cryptocurrency, what exactly is blockchain and why is it important to understand it? I don't know how short I can be, but I can certainly give you an explanation. So, so blockchain, blockchain is a technology that cryptocurrency rests on top of. 
So cryptocurrencies, all of them are just, well, actually that's, that's not true. They are, they are, they're all applications of a distributed ledger technology of which blockchain is probably the most prevalent right now. So distributed ledger technology is what Rule and I have been talking about. Basically, instead of going to the bank and saying, the bank having a list saying who has what, there are thousands of computers out there that say, have the exact same ledger saying who has what. So that's a distributed ledger technology. Blockchain is one way of implementing that type of technology and cryptocurrencies are an application of that technology at the end of the day. That's probably the simplest I can make it. Jason, I can give you an analogy that might help your dad. Great. Thank you. So the way that I try and explain it to some people who, who might recognize this analogy, I'm dating myself. Uh, so when the internet first started, right, we all had AOL. Yeah. And if you remember, AOL was kind of a walled garden, which was you would go to AOL and everything was on AOL. You could get sports, you could get movies, you could get news. So most people in the early days, we thought AOL was the internet. They were synonymous. Yes. Similarly today, most people, when they hear blockchain, they think instantly of Bitcoin and they think Bitcoin is the blockchain. Gotcha. But very much like as AOL started to pass away, pass, uh, uh, get, get surpassed, we realized, oh, you could just go to an individual web address to see the different types of news you want, the different types of sports, or the different types of entertainment you want. You didn't have to stay inside of AOL. And people started to understand the internet was the platform on which all these other things could be built upon. In the similar fashion, the blockchain is the platform. Bitcoin just happens to be one application okay. that uses the blockchain and has become the most popular. And as they build out more and more applications, it will become more like the internet as people understand. There's different things you can do with the blockchain. Right now, AO, um, Bitcoin just happens to be the most popular. So there are going to be lots of different types of cryptocurrencies over probably the next few years. Bitcoin just being the most popular, the AOL of, of cryptocurrency. Is that a fair statement? You know what? There's already thousands of cryptocurrencies. But yes, that's the one that that and Ethereum, I think, have become the most popular, if you will. Uh, but as I mentioned before, in decentralized finance, there's going to be tons of different types of applications that will, will be built on the blockchain technology itself. Okay. No, that actually, that actually helps a lot. Now, let me ask you guys both a question. I, I, I didn't kind of prep you for this one, but I, I, I was doing a little bit of research I remember reading a case from probably about a year ago where there was a cryptocurrency broker, for lack of a better term, who had about $200 million worth of cryptocurrency wallet type transactions on his laptop, and he died suddenly from natural causes when his laptop was heavily encrypted. They were never able, I remember they spent a lot of time trying to break into that laptop and couldn't because of the encryption. Is all that cryptocurrency lost? I mean, do the people who invested that money, did they lose that money because they can no longer get into that laptop? So does that ring a bell? Right now, so so there, there is a a fixed number of Bitcoin that can be issued, twenty one million. Once we get to twenty one million, there will be no new Bitcoin issued. Right now, we're, we're slightly over eighteen and a half million. Of that eighteen and a half million, there is speculation that somewhere around a third of it is gone for that very reason. Wow. So what does that mean, gone? So, when you say gone, what does that so mean? So to access your Bitcoin, you need two pieces of information. You need your public key which is what Rahul was talking about, the, the address that you send it to, so how everyone knows right. you are. Then you need your private key. Think of that like your password. If you, right. if you don't okay. have that password, there is no way to access the 
cryptocurrency that is in your that is, that is associated with your public key. It is there is no way to break that under current technology. So even if it's in your name and it, you got ten million dollars in, in, in Bitcoin in in a wallet in your name, if you don't have that private key, you can't get to it. Period. Well, so see, see, that's the point. Is that, is that if you own it directly, it's not in your name. It is in oh, it's it. in your okay. address. Now now see that's why a lot of people are doing this through somewhere like a Coinbase or a Kraken because if I have an account at Kraken and I die, my heirs can go to Kraken, show them the, the, the court documents saying they're the executor of my account, and Kraken will release that asset to them Got because it. it's not held directly in an, a wallet that I control. It's held in a, in a wallet that Kraken controls, oh. and Kraken is my clearinghouse for that. It's gotcha. Basically, Kraken is acting as the bank there or the broker. They're, they're, they're the custodian of that asset for me. I don't have to have my Bitcoin sitting at Kraken or, 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 or Coinbase. I can hold it directly, but then you have one of the risks you have in doing that is that if I forget my private key or I die without giving someone else my private key, no one can ever access that. Now, the, the one, that money is literally lost. Basically, yes. The, the caveat is that there's, wow. spe- there's speculation that, that once quantum computing um, becomes mainstream, that this cryptography will be breakable. And maybe at yeah. that point we could track it down. Maybe I, I don't know enough about cryptography. I, that I know a lot about it. That I know a lot more than I do about cryptocurrency. That that's a that's a big mountain to climb. It some is. of those some of those encryption codes and, and, and standards are very difficult. So that that'll be interesting. But I was just reading that article as I was preparing for this thing, and I, I they were saying basically almost two hundred million dollars of, of of cryptocurrency was was lost because they can't. They brought in every forensic guy they could on the planet, and they can't break into those laptops. Yep. So, okay, interesting. No, that's interesting. Well, do you have anything to add to that, or? Yeah, just you know, just for your dad, I feel like I'm just talking to him. You I know, appreciate uh, that. My dad will appreciate that. Trust me. Yeah. So think of it, you know, just to simplify, kind of the the public key, private key. Just think of it this way. You know, every house in the United States has a public address, right? Yeah. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter. You know, the president. You know, 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, right? But. For every single one of those houses, we also have a private key that allows us entry and exit from that house. And if somebody wants to send you some mail, let's say, and they send it to your public address, once you take that mail into your house, no one has access to it except for you because you have the key. But if you were to lose your own key to your house, you can't access that mail anymore, right? And you can't access anything in your house. So just think of that in the digital world. We all have public addresses on the blockchain if you have a wallet. But only you retain that private key to access that currency. And if you lose that key, you've, lose, you've lost access to that currency. Now, in the physical wow. world, we can figure out ways to get back in the house. In the digital world, we cannot. Got it. No, these are fantastic examples by both of you. I really appreciate it. But let's, let's talk. Let's just wrap up. I know we talked about cryptocurrency is not illegal. Anything illegal about blockchain from a criminal enforcement perspective? I mean, is there anything I need to worry about from a blockchain perspective? So in terms of the illegality of the blockchain, no. Now, what I would tell you is there's two types of kind of currency available or coins. So what we've been talking about in terms of pseudo-anonymous, the, the bitcoins, that is actually very beneficial to law enforcement. As I mentioned, there is software tracing out there that helps us trace these transactions to catch the bad guys. We don't need legal process to see the transactions because the blockchain is public. And if you know one person on the end of the one of the transactions, it's pretty easy to figure out where the money went. Okay. But there's also something called a privacy coin. And what that means is it's much yeah. harder to find out or harder to trace where the transactions are going. Now, why I bring that up in response to your question is it's not illegal to use privacy coins, 
But where that can come into concern is if you're a financial institution or you're engaging in a financial transaction and someone is using a, finan uh, a privacy coin, that will obscure the transaction such that it makes it much, much more difficult to find out who is entering into this transaction. So if you have anti-money laundering regulations or know your customer regulations and someone's using a privacy coin, it's going to be much more difficult for you to abide and comply with those regulations. Okay. No, that, that's good. I'm, I'm just actually, my, my head is spinning from all this information, but this is super, super, I, I can now see why people would rather have payment in cryptocurrency if they can, just because of some of the stuff we're talking about with the blockchain and, and, and the ability to kind of blur the lines of, of traceability and trackability, especially if, if you're on the lack of regulation is just, it, it, I, I could see a real future, which actually makes me think, Jeff, as I get back to you, I, is it safe to say, and I, I think I know the answer to this, but I'd love to get your read and follow up with a rule as we wrap up today. But is cryptocurrency a fad or is this here to stay? Or is it, it, I'm going to follow that up. Is, is it, I mean, what's the U.S. government going to do to protect <laughs> people from getting ripped off? Or like, because ransomware, the growth of ransomware, I think we could argue, has been exponentially tied to the effectiveness of cryptocurrency as a form of payment. So I asked you a multi-part question, yeah. you know, one question in 27 parts, yeah. but you know, let's, let, let's start with the fad part and then go to the U.S. government part, and then we'll wrap it up. Certainly. So just one, one additional point on, on Ro's last point, because I, 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 sure. I, I'm sure he agrees with this, but blockchain, crypto, they're like anything else. It's a tool, and a tool is not inherently good or bad. It can be used for good. It can be used for bad. Blockchain, crypto are no different. So there's nothing inherently illegal about any of this, but because of the way these tools are built, it actually lends itself well to criminal efforts at the current time. I think that may change, but um, is it a fad? Not a chance. Um, I can't tell you which cryptocurrency users are gonna be around in 20, 30 years. If I, you know, if I could tell you that, I wouldn't be an attorney, I'd be an investment manager. Um, but, right. but, I, but I can say with 99.9% .9 currency that crypto is not going anywhere, that there will be cryptocurrencies for the foreseeable future. Um, as far as what- uh, yeah, well, okay, okay, hold on. Okay, yeah. any chance US government says, screw this. Uh, this is just too complicated, too hard to trace, too difficult. We're just going to end. We're going to ban. We're going to prohibit by, by legislation cryptocurrency. Any chance that happens? Always a chance, but they'd be shooting themselves in the foot. Why? Because people aren't going to stop using it. It's too, okay. too, there's too much utility in cryptocurrencies, especially when you're dealing with international transactions. It is. is well, go ahead, Rob. Sorry, I, I didn't mean to cut you off, but it goes back to what I was discussing earlier, uh, Jason, which is the decentralized nature of cryptocurrency, which is even if the U.S. government or any government decides to ban a cryptocurrency, you can't keep people from using it because they don't control or the government doesn't control the currency. So again, going back to what I said, if you live in Zimbabwe or Venezuela, where your government doesn't have a strong monetary policy or can seize your assets... This is a really great way to try and avoid those, uh, those dangers. But in the same way or in the opposite way here, if the government, because we have a strong centralized authority, tried to ban these things, they really couldn't stop people from using it. And it would probably maybe even increase the use, especially amongst criminals, uh, because it would just be another way to facilitate criminal transactions. And um, I'd like to just end with one kind of example that I can give from, from a case that we worked a few years back which is 
a and it shows you the difference between regular currency and cryptocurrency, which is you know a we had a victim who was duped by email into a real estate transaction. She was about to close on her dream house, and she got an email that was fake from the cyber criminal, and it said, "Hey, here are your wiring instructions." And of course, the wiring instructions were fake, but she wanted her brand new house, and so she wired over a million dollars to this uh, uh, wire address. Now, luckily, uh, she contacted the authorities within a certain amount of time, and we could contact the U.S. Treasury, and we could activate a kill chain, and we could freeze that wire transaction and get the money back to the victim. And that was a success story. Had that same transaction been done using cryptocurrency, we would not have been able to get that money back to that victim because there would not have been a central authority for us to contact to freeze the transaction oh, okay. totally and get it back. Sense. And the last thing I wanted to say is this is – Regardless of how you use cryptocurrency, there is one imperative rule that you need to know. Cryptocurrency transactions are one-way, irreversible transactions, which is there's no do-overs. So if you were to send money to someone or currency to someone and their address, which is 16 you know, alphanumeric characters, right. if you get one character wrong and you send it to the wrong wallet, you're never getting that money back unless that person sends it to you. So to kind of wrap up, why wow. criminals love it is it's hard to trace and track. Once you've sent the currency, you can't get it back unless you find the criminal and order them to send it back, which with the pseudo-anonymity makes is kind of difficult to do. So it's kind of a perfect storm that, we, that has been developed in terms of, just as you mentioned, why ransomware has exploded so much is cryptocurrency allows that pseudo-anonymity for people to attack many companies across the United States with ransomware and then extract currency using the blockchain. Okay, I'm going to break my own rule and ask one more question here because you guys really got my head thinking. Yeah, when I was young, I got to spend some time at Fort Knox running around the parade fields there for a while in basic training. And the whole purpose of Fort Knox was to protect the gold supply because that was supposed to be the the fallout. If the American economy collapsed, we would we would fall back on the gold. It sounds to me, almost from listening to today's podcast, that cryptocurrency could kind of fill that role and replace gold. It, it, am I totally crazy here, or, or is this something I need to edit out of this podcast before anybody <laughs> hears it? Well, so people in the industry try to sell Bitcoin as a gold replacement. It's a repository of value is how they put it. That's what it sounds like right. to me. The, the issue is that with gold, there is something I can actually put my hands on and put that somewhere and keep it safe. And its value is based on what someone else is willing to pay me for it. Crypto is similar in that it's worth whatever someone's willing to pay for it, but there's no, there's no physical manifestation here. So it. There, there, I, right, I, there aren't a bunch of tanks blocked protecting the gold supply at Fort Knox is what right, you're saying. Right, right. I mean, the, what's, what, would be the, what would be protecting Bitcoin is a bunch of firewalls. Gotcha. And it's 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 a I mean, theoretically, it may be a, it may truly be a gold replacement. That's certainly how the industry is trying to, to position it. Whether it actually is, I'm not smart enough to say. Well, Raul, I'll, I'll throw that question to you and then we're, we're, we will wrap it up. But you talk about Venezuela and some of these countries that have destabilized economies. Would cryptocurrency be the natural fill in to kind of keep these governments afloat if they needed to? Because of its decentralization and, and this kind of like what we just talked about with Jeff, or, or yeah, or am I way off base? No, you're you're 100 correct. It, it offers an opportunity not just for the the central government, but also 
uh, offers opportunities for the individuals living in those jurisdictions to have economic independence away from the centralized authority. Uh, yeah. But to answer your question in the United States, what I would say is this, is just as Jeff had mentioned, gold is tangible. But at the end of the day, we're already living in a digital world. For example, when you get a paid from your, from your employer, you're not getting paid in cash, right? Most people, don't, a lot of people don't even carry cash anymore. You're getting numbers in an account that you look on either using your banking app or logging in your computer. You don't actually physically hold that, that money. So what happens? Why do we trust that that money is actually in the bank? Well, we have FDIC and we have a confidence in our monetary system. That's what is, is backing really the U.S. dollar. It's not that we have enough dollars, although we've got a lot right now in circulation. But think of it this way. If we all went to the bank and we all tried to withdraw our, all our total bank accounts, there'd be what they call the run on the bank. There, was, there wouldn't be enough dollars. But no one does that because we, because we have such confidence in the central monetary, monetary authority in the United States. So when you look at cryptocurrency, there is no centralized authority. So what is it that people are believing in? Why is Bitcoin at 60,000? It's just a belief. There's nothing else. There's nothing backing it. There's no physical manifestation of it. It's just that people believe, based on supply and demand, it has the value that it does. Is that real? Well, no one really knows, right? It is what wow. the market bears. Why do people pay $100 million for a Van Gogh? Exactly. It's, it's, like, it's like any other intangible value that exists. We as a society or we as individuals in a transaction are willing to place a certain amount of trust in the value of something, and that's what the market is responding to. You know, on behalf of my father, I want to thank you both. This has been <laughs> fascinating because I know right now, if he, he listens to all my podcasts, he's probably my biggest audience. And I, I can imagine a phone call I would have gotten after this one saying, what the hell was that? And you guys did a great job explaining it. I really can't thank you enough because you really, really, really... We're, we're awesome guests, and you really put this in, a, I think, in a manner that I hope the whole audience will appreciate and, and, and better understand. And as we wrap things up, I, before I, I, I end this, I just want to say, do you guys have any final thoughts or anything you want to add, or do we cover everything you think we need, the people need to know? I would just say that if anyone has the unfortunate situation that they become a victim of a cyber crime, and whether they are being requested to transfer money in terms of gift cards, cryptocurrency, or wire transfers, uh, please notify your local law enforcement immediately. Because one of the things that we found, Jason, in doing the work that I previously did was that many people feel embarrassed when they are a victim of cybercrime. And the only way we're going to stop that is by people being more proactive and getting law enforcement involved. So that'd be my only takeaway. Excellent. Raul Gupta, thank you. Jeff, anything you want to add? I, so first, I absolutely agree with her. We'll get law enforcement involved immediately if there's any uh, any 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 fraud or crime that you're aware of. Uh, the one thing I will say to your question, we've barely scratched the surface of cryptocurrency. So for people that actually are interested, there's a lot more to learn. So maybe right. you know we'll have we'll have version two, three, four, five, and six of this podcast we, at some point. Yeah, in the we might have a follow up on this sooner than you think, guys. This was super helpful, Raul Gupta, Jeff Bloomberg. Thank you guys both. Thanks for listening to ACC Chicago's It's All Hearsay. We hope you enjoyed our discussion on a primer on cryptocurrency brought to you by ACC Chicago and Fagre Drinker, 
one of our platinum sponsors. If you'd like to hear more about the latest trends at the intersection of law and technology, check out Fagri Drinker on Law and Technology Podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Be sure to tune in next time as we bring you even more content. As always, if you like what you heard today, visit our website at www.acc.com forward slash Chicago to sign up for our email list, as well as check out all the links and resources for It's All Hearsay. Like, comment, or subscribe to our podcast and follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram at ACC Chicago. That's it for this episode, folks. I'm your host, Chantal Kazai. See you next time.